as, as you're doing that as well, I'll ask you to grab your Bible or your iPad or your phone, and you want to find your way to Luke chapter 16. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at Luke 16, look at verses 19 through 31. We're jumping back into the book of Luke once again and seeing how we can learn as we walk with Jesus, learn from his example, learn from his word, what he's saying to us. And so this morning, as we look at this passage that we're going to walk through together, as I mentioned before, when we encounter what Jesus says and we let him speak from the word and we let scripture kind of uh, inspect our lives, it is not easy. And I want you to know, when I stand up here week in and week out, I never stand here as an expert. I stand here as someone, in a sense, who's preaching to myself as I process through what is God saying to me personally about what I'm encountering in the scriptures. And the same is true today. So this morning we're going to talk about, in fact, Ray mentioned earlier, about Jesus and wealth. And for us to have, I think, the proper mindset to be able to, to grasp what Jesus is saying in this passage... I want you right now to think in your mind, you don't have to say the person's name, but I want you to think of somebody that, that you know of, it could be somebody you know personally or somebody you just know of, that when you think of wealth, you think of somebody who's rich, that's who comes to mind. Okay, anybody, everybody got that person? Okay, you got that? I'm not going to ask you to respond, but I can probably tell you 99.9% of us in this room didn't think of ourselves. You didn't come to your own mind to think, I'm rich. I'm wealthy. That's when I think of wealth, I think of myself. Most of us in the room, almost all of us, probably all of us, didn't think that. Because for most of us, we would categorize ourselves, even though we live in the wealthiest nation in the history of the world, we think we're all middle class. That's how we classify ourselves. Maybe upper middle class. That's kind of maybe we push the envelope just a little bit. But I want you and I to take a step back before we jump into this passage to understand something. The lifestyle that we live is lived by less than 5% of the globe. The, the good majority of the world lives off of $2 a day. You ever tried to live off of $2 a day? A number of years ago, we challenged our church in Oregon to do that. We actually did some different things, and one of them was for one day, try to live off $2. So in my family, there's four. We lived off $8 for a day. We couldn't drive because that meant you paid for gas. We couldn't lose, use electricity because that cost money. So we walked to the store. We had to buy our food, and we used eight bucks to buy tons of rice and beans, and that's what we had all day long. And we walked, it took us three and a half miles to the store and three and a half miles back. And even at the end of the day, I know that somehow I was going above because I had a house that cost a whole lot more than $2 a day. But that's the rest of the world. So what I want us to understand, whether you categorize yourself or not, see, you don't have to be Bill Gates or you don't have to be Donald Trump or you don't have to be Warren Buffett to be considered wealthy. In the world, every person sitting in this room right now is wealthy. And therefore, the words that we're going to hear from Jesus as he, if he, share, he shares a parable about a rich man and a poor man, the rich man in, the, in this parable is us. We have to see it that way. We have to understand it that way. So as, with that in mind, let me go ahead and read this passage to you, and then we'll talk about the specifics of it. So Jesus is once again talking to a group of religious leaders, and, and particularly those who have considered themselves wealthy. And so he tells this story, tells a parable to prove a point. He says, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. 
The rich man also died and was buried, and in hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And beside all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed, so that those who wanted to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone come across from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let, them, uh, let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father, Abraham, he said, but if someone from, uh, from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Now, I want you to, to think about this passage because there's a tendency for us to look at this passage and think that Jesus is talking purely about the afterlife. That is not the point of this parable. In fact, that's why we can't look at this parable and get hard and fast about exactly what happens in the afterlife. Because the point that Jesus makes with this parable is the story about a rich man and a poor man. And he's using the illustration of the afterlife to talk about the way you and I handle wealth in this life. And so understanding that this picture that he's painting for you and I is that in this life, this rich man had everything that he wanted. At his disposal because he had wealth and yet the poor man that just sat just outside his gate, the, the perimeter of his property, the perimeter of his wealth had absolutely nothing. But when they die, the roles are reversed. The poor man has paradise and has everything. Abraham's bosom, the Abraham's side, that's the term the scriptures uses in the, use in the Old Testament to talk about paradise, to talk about the place where God's presence is. That's where the poor man is. And then the rich man, he ends up in torment, in hell, or the word is Hades. And that's the place that we know as hell, the place that we don't want to go. So Jesus is using this illustration that the rich man had everything in this life. All the comforts, all the wealth, all the riches. The poor man had nothing. And now, the opposite is true. I'll be honest with you, this is one of the toughest passages. And I go back to it periodically when I find myself being complacent or comfortable or somehow complaining about all that I have. Because I remember what's at stake. I remember how important this is. So with this in mind, understand one thing that Jesus illustrates about this man. In this story, the rich man never abused the poor man. He never spit on him. He never kicked him. He never beat him. He never even had him removed from the gate just outside of his compound. So why would Jesus tell this story? The reason that Jesus tells this story is because the one thing that the rich man was guilty of was doing absolutely nothing. That was his sin. He did nothing. He was indifferent. He was apathetic. He was passive. He did nothing for the poor man. And that's why the roles reverse in eternity. So understanding that this morning, I want to ask some questions. It really has to do with, has my wealth caused me to become indifferent? I know this is hard because this is a wake-up call that many times that we don't want to wake up to. It's a reality that we don't want to have to see. But the first question in verse 19 through 21 is, am I blind to the needs of others? Has my wealth caused me, remember all of us in this room are wealthy, has my wealth caused me to not be able to see what I need to see? So it says in verse 20, at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores, longing to eat what fell from 
the rich man's table. Every day he passed this poor man. Every day he saw him. Every day he knew he was there. And this poor man, all he wanted was if he could just eat from, eat scraps from the rich man's table. And, and the imagery is powerful. It shows the, the decadence of wealth because when they say that they wanted to eat the scraps from the table, what wealthy people would do is when they would finish a meal, instead of getting like a nice little sanitary wipe that you can get, you know, when you go to KFC and you have chicken all over your hands or, or even a napkin or even going to the bathroom and wa- washing your, your hands, is that you would take a piece of bread and you would break it up and you would actually use the bread to wipe all the grease off your hand and then you would discard it. That's all the poor man wanted. If I could just even have that, I would have something. But the rich man never even saw the man there. He never really even saw the need. He was blinded because of his own wealth and his own comfort. And just outside the perimeter of his wealth was this broken man that he ignored, that he was indifferent towards, that he did nothing for. Has that become our life? Has that become the way that we live our lives? Is that we see what we want to see around us, but we don't see what we need to see. We become blind to the reality of pain in our lives or in the lives of other people. And it's not just seeing the person on the side of the street or the person you walk by when you're going to work or school or whatever it is. It's globally seeing what is going on in the world. How do you watch the news? When you see news on TV or when you read a newspaper or you go on the internet and you're reading news, how do you see the news around you? I know a number of years ago I went through a major change in the way that I watched the news and the way I saw things because poverty is so predominant globally that it's on the news all the time. Oppression and injustice and poverty and brokenness that when that comes onto the news it becomes commonplace and you and I just skip to the next story. Or we just ignore it until something comes on about what we really want to see, like weather or sports or social media or whatever else happening in the world, like the stock market. Those are things that are important to us, but the fact that maybe thousands, if not millions of people are starving some other place in the planet, that becomes somehow secondary to what's important to us. You see it in the news when we report the news and when we report in our country, when the loss of life occurs, the first thing you hear is how many Americans lost their lives. And I, that, that frightens me because the loss of life is the loss of life. And that's important for us to see that. So how do we see things around us? That's not an indictment on our nation. I'm just saying Jesus loves all people, not just people who live in the, on this continent or in this country. We have to see globally. We have to see locally. If you have trouble seeing what's around you, one thing will help you. If you have kids, God's given kids radar that parents sometimes lack. A number of years ago, in our vehicle, particularly Kim's car, because that's our family vehicle, and that's where the kids end up most of the time, we started to put these little packets together that are lunches, basically a meal in a bag that's non-perishable, and it's totally edible, and it's actually good. It's got some good nutrition to it. And we have at least six of those in Kim's car at all times when we're driving around. Because when we encounter people who have need, it's always that awkward moment. Do I give them money? Is this legit? Is their cardboard sign just for humor? What's going on? All those things that go through our mind, and then we, we just drive right by them. When you have those things in your car, there's no question, are you going to give it to somebody who has need? You are. In fact, it's funny. With Courtney and Jordan, they did this when they are young. They still do it today. They're 15 and 17. We can't drive by somebody on the side of the road without doing something. There have been times, literally, we're driving. One time there, we were on a busy street. There's like three lanes of traffic going either direction. We're in the middle, and suddenly from the back seat, either Courtney or Jordan yelling, hey, there's a person on the side of the road, and they look hungry. 
I'm like, well, I can't pull across, you know, three lanes of traffic just to get over there. Like, Dad, and they hounded me. We were in a Target parking lot, and Courtney has radar, and she sees all the way across the parking lot, there's some guy sitting there who has a sign who needs something. She's like, Dad, you got to drive over there. So what did I have to do? I drove over there all the time, constantly. In fact, we went on vacation one time, and within the first five hours of vacation, we went through all six of those bags because Courtney and Jordan wouldn't let it lie. And I think you and I need to have that perspective. Sometimes you have to see through somebody else's eyes to see the reality around us of the brokenness that surrounded us and the wealth that we've been given that is a part of the answer to the resource of their lives. We have to see we can't be blinded like this man was blinded. Second thing, verse 22 and 23 is asked this question, am I ignorant of the pitfalls of wealth? There is a downside to having money. So look at verse 22. It says, Then time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side, and the rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. The rich man ended up where? In hell. Now, I understand we are saved by God's grace. Jesus' death on the cross purchases our life, pays for the debt of our sin. But what Jesus is communicating through here is if that is true of us, then something begins to change in us about the way we see possessions and wealth and the way we see people in poverty. Something changes in us. Because God loves us, the love goes through us to other people. So asking this question, am I ignorant that there are pitfalls? There's a downside to wealth. And this is what's hard because you, you want to just, you, you know, when I come to one of these passages, like, really, can we just, can we go somewhere else? Because this is not very happy and fun. But it's the thing that Jesus said 2,000 years ago because he knew that 2,000 years later there'd be a group of people that we need to be reminded of again and again and again. To be reminded of how we handle the wealth that we have determines not only what happens in this life, but it impacts the next life. I'm going to ask you to do something I don't often do, but I'm going to ask you, I'm going to read a portion of Scripture from Matthew 25. And I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. And the reason I want you to do that is I don't want you to see me. I don't want you to see anything up here. I don't want you to look at words. I just want you to envision the words that Jesus speaks and what that will look like when this unfolds someday and how wealth and poverty influences eternity. So starting in verse 31 of Matthew 25, just with your eyes closed, Jesus' words. He says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people from one another as shepherds separate the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go and visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me. You who are cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me some, nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. 
I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison or did, did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Go ahead and open your eyes. That's scary. Now, in the context, Jesus is actually referring to Christian brothers and sisters who find themselves in points of poverty. But the principle applied there is how you and I respond to people who are broken in poverty. Determines our understanding of who Jesus is. Determines if we really connect with him. Because ultimately, when we care for somebody in need, we are caring for Jesus himself. That's the message he's trying to communicate to us. So there are pitfalls to having everything that we always wanted. Because you and I could be like the rich man, that we get everything that we want in this life, but lose everything we need in the next life. That's why Jesus gives us this reminder. Then the fourth, or excuse me, the third thing, another question. Aren't you glad you came to church today to be encouraged and loved? And Yeah. It's amazing when you encounter Jesus' teachings. This is one of the things I love, is that you can't get mad at me. I'm just reading what Jesus said. And if you're mad at anybody, get mad at him and take it up with him. So the third thing is, the question is, am I oblivious to the value of others? Do I value people the way God values people? So look at, go back to the story. Verse 24. So the, the rich man is in hell. Get this. The place you don't want to be. And he still doesn't get it. He says in verse 24, he says to Abraham, send Lazarus to, to dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue. Lazarus. Remember Lazarus, the poor man. And he says in verse 27 and 28, send Lazarus to my father's house for I have five brothers let him warn them. What is he still doing, even in eternity? Even in hell, what is he doing? He sees the poor man as the poor man who's his errand boy. I'm a rich man. I have value. I have status. The poor man has nothing. Send him to dip his finger in water. Send him to tell my family because I'm rich and he's poor. He's still doing it. Have you and I reached that point where we're oblivious to the value of other people because whether we'll articulate it or not, we have a pecking order. We have a value system. We assess value according to different things within people's lives. One of the obvious ways that we have a tendency to do that is when you go to a restaurant and the server is not as fast as you want them to be, or they don't, they're not as happy as you want them to be, or they don't do everything right. How do you treat them? It's amazing. It's like, you know, we're Christians. We tip really well, and we're very good with people in restaurants. That is so not true. Ask a server. When the Christians come in, they're like, oh, there goes my tip. Really? I've heard this before. Why? Because somehow we have this value system that, oh, they're just a server. They're here to serve me food, and they better get my order right, and they better make sure it's just perfect. Otherwise, I'm not going to tip them well, and I'm somehow going to give them a bad attitude. Now, none of us have ever done that before, have we? We have. We assess value according to people's status in society. God doesn't assess value. He, he values everyone. He values people who are broken. In fact, one of the things that's so amazing about this parable, read through the parables, you'll only find one name in all the parables. The name is Lazarus, and it belongs to a poor man. Jesus says, uses people as illustrations, but he only says a name once. And it wasn't even for the rich man. It was for the poor man. He gave the poor man a name because he valued the poor man and wanted us to see that. 
So understanding that, being oblivious to the value of others. One of the things that you and I are in danger of is because we live in, comparably, we live in wealth. Many times we don't see the value in the story behind the brokenness in the lives of other people around us. Because in a sense, we're almost insulated from the brokenness of the world that we live in. One of the things that cures that faster than anything else is to travel outside this country to other countries where poverty is the issue. It will change you. It will change the way you see what you have. It will change the way you value people because you will realize that that person who's broken is not just one of millions. They're an individual that has a story. Going to Uganda, I've shared this a couple years ago. We went to Uganda, life-changing. The most of the, the, the dramatic changes in my life have come outside of this country because everything's stripped away of comfort and ease and you're faced with, does your faith really matter at all? So we're in northern Uganda. We're in a medical clinic for HIV, AIDS, for kids, primarily for kids. And we met this gal named Sheila. Sheila blew me away. She's 14 years old. She sat down with us, and through an interpreter, she shared her story. A number of years ago, her dad had died from some disease. We don't know what it was, but which is common in Uganda, in northern part of Uganda. And then about the year before, her mom died from AIDS. She's 14 years old. She has three younger siblings. They now belong to her. She doesn't have a job. She only has the hut that her parents had when they died. She has no way of making income. And she has three siblings that depend on her. One of them, the youngest one, just over a year old. Now she cares for her. She carries her around on, the back, on her back. She has no, no resource. So to survive, she goes around their hut and in the field, she digs up roots, and that's what they eat. She cooks it, and they eat it. She comes to the clinic as often as she can because her little one-year-old sister, who she carries on her back, is HIV positive. So she can get free medication. You know what the biggest turning point in her life was in the last year? Was when the clinic found a way to get her a bicycle. So that she didn't have to walk the miles from her hut to the clinic, she could ride her bike. And she's telling this story. I didn't even have to know the language. She was so overjoyed to have a bicycle and to have free medication for her sister. And when we, we took off and left the clinic a couple hours later, we were driving around some back roads in Uganda, and we came across her again. She's riding on her bike with a huge smile on her face, happy to be alive, happy to have food that day, happy to have a place that her sister could get medication. See, Sheila had a story. Sheila had value. Sheila wasn't one of the thousands of kids who are struggling in northern Uganda. Sheila is an individual that God loves and values. Do you and I value people the way God wants us to? Do we see them the way he sees them? Not just one of thousands of one of millions, but one. One that we can make a difference in their life if we're willing to part with some of our wealth to see God work through that. A couple more questions to ask. The fourth one is this, is am I deaf to the words of God? So in verse 29, Abraham replied. Remember what he's saying. Do this, do this, and, and this will happen. If you have somebody come back from the dead, all these things. And then what does Abraham say? He says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. What is, what is Abraham saying to the rich man? They have the Old Testament writings. They have the law of Moses that God gave to his people. They have the prophets that came all throughout Israel's history saying, 
sounding the alarm, you're going off track, come back to God. They have Moses, they have the prophets, and they still didn't listen. The very words of God were somehow not enough to get through to them. But that's what they have left. So even if I do something amazing and send somebody back from death to life, it's not going to matter. Because they have to hear the words of God. And you and I have to take a step back and say, okay, have, have I somehow turned down the certain verses and passages in Scripture that I don't know what to do with and I don't like? That I read right past them to get to the ones that have to do with how God wants to bless me and God wants to do good things for me. But what about the brokenness and the poverty and the injustice and the oppression that the Bible talks about? Over 2,000 times in Scripture, the Bible references oppression or, or poverty or injustice. It's all over the place. A couple weeks ago, I talked about Jim Wallace, who cut out physically all the passages in the Bible that had to do with poverty, injustice, and oppression. And what he was left with was, was a rag that couldn't even hold together if you remove all those passages. God has a lot to say about poverty. It's amazing. If you read the, through the Bible, God talks about money and poverty almost more than anything else. Because it has so much to do with how we understand who he is and the way that we handle those things in our life. I'm going to ask you to do what I asked you to do a little bit earlier. I'm going to read from Isaiah 58. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. Because I want you to hear again, this is the voice of God speaking to his people a few thousand years ago because they had gotten to a place where they got everything they thought they wanted and it still wasn't enough. They still complained. And they fasted to get more and this is what God said to them. With your eyes closed, just listen to what God said to his people. And this is in a paraphrase called The Message. It says, shout, a full throat shout. Hold nothing back, a trumpet blast shout. Tell my people what's wrong with their lives. Face my family, Jacob, with their sins. They're busy, busy, busy at worship and love studying all about me. To all appearances, they are a nation of, of right living people, law abiding, God honoring. They ask me, what's the right thing to do? And love having me on their side, but they also complain. Why do we fast and you don't look our way? Why do we humble ourselves and you don't even notice? Well, here's why. The bottom line on your fast days is profit. You drive your employees much too hard. You fast, but at the same time, you bicker and fight. You fast, but you swing a mean fist. The kind of fasting you do not, you won't get your, with this kind of fasting, you won't get your prayers off the ground. Do you think that this is the kind of fast I'm after? A day to show off humility? To put on a pious long face and parade around solemnly in black. Do you call that fasting a fast that I, God, would like? This is the kind of fast I am after. To break the chains of injustice and get rid of exploitation in the workplace. Free the oppressed. Cancel debts. What I am interested in seeing you do is sharing your food with the hungry. Inviting the homeless poor into your homes. Putting clothes on the shivering ill-clad. Being available to your own families. Do this and the lights will turn on. Your lives will turn around at once. Your righteousness will pave your way. The God of glory will secure your passage. Then when you pray, God will answer. Your call, you, when you call out for help, I will say, here I am. You can open your eyes. That's hard. But what was God saying to Israel? Listen, you're in the promised land. You got everything that you want. I provided for you. And yet you still complain as though it's not enough. And while you complain, you're allowing injustice and you're ignoring the people who deal with poverty every day of their life and all the things around you and you're fasting for yourselves, not for the world around you, not for people who really ultimately need 
what you already have. See, you and I have to break free from the culture that we live in. The culture we live in says you and I are number one. What I need is the priority. What I want is most important. It's called consumerism. And it's a cancer that destroys what God is trying to do in our lives. And we're all guilty of it. It's inbred in us from, from the youngest age. I remember growing up, Christmas for me had nothing to do about Jesus. It had everything to do about presents for me. Anybody relate? The highlight of my year was when the Sears catalog came in the mail. Anybody remember when actually physical catalogs came out? Like, you know, they're like 5,000 pages, and they cost like $42 to get mailed to you. But every year, the Sears catalog would come to our house, and I would grab it, and I would own it for months. And I would go to the toy section, and I would circle and highlight, and I would, I would think about and look at and dream about all the toys that my parents needed to buy me. In fact, I was even a good son because I would go through and find the least expensive one to try to save some money for my parents at Christmas time. But year in and year out, I remember being so disappointed when I opened up what was under the tree for me and it wasn't what was in the Sears catalog. But then I do remember one year where the very thing that I circled, which was the number one thing I want, I got it. And I was happy for three weeks. That was it. And then it got boring. And then my friend had something better. And I went right back to where I started before. See, that's the cycle of consumerism. It promises something it cannot deliver. It promises that if you have more stuff, then you'll be happy. But if you ask anybody who has more stuff, they just want more stuff. And when they have more stuff, they're less happy than when they had less stuff. It's true. Some of the most miserable people I know are the wealthiest people I know. How does that work? It's because wealth is not everything that we think it is. And that's why Jesus is saying, listen, the poor man, the rich man, don't be like the rich man who didn't see the pitfalls of wealth, who ignored the words that I spoke to him and missed it. And then finally, the fifth thing, the fifth question for us today is, am I waiting for a sign from God? Verse 30 and 31, No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Abraham replied to him, he says, No, if they, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets... They will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead, even if the most amazing miracle happens, if they don't get it now, they won't get it then. And I think that's important because how many times do you and I wait for the divine moment from God? Oh, right? The clouds part, the heavens open, and the voice of God booms. Care for the poor. We're waiting for that, aren't we? It's like... You've seen Bruce Almighty, you know, he's praying for a sign and then a truck with all these signs pulls in front of him. I mean, the whole movie is basically saying God's speaking to you. You're just not listening. See, we wait for that. We kind of put the fleece out to God. Well, God, if you really want me to do this, then this, this, and this will happen. God doesn't jump through our hoops. And if you want to not do something, you won't do it. Because you'll set up the parameters in such a way that it's tilted your way. Because God has already spoken. And he's not going to do some grandiose thing to say, care for people who deal with issues of poverty. Don't be fooled by, the, by the, the promises of wealth. But see clearly the truth about wealth and poverty in this life. And then you will receive reward in the next life. You and I have to be able to, to come to grips with this. We have to see what we're not seeing. Up in Portland, there's an organization called Medical Teams International. It's a relief organization that we've partnered with in the past. And 
when we were up in the Portland area, one of the things I did repeatedly, probably me personally, seven to ten times, went through this thing called the exhibit. And the exhibit is this, this basically, it's a display, and you walk through it, it takes you about an hour, hour and a half, and it takes you to different places on the planet where tragedy has happened, where poverty is dealt with, where issues, with injustice, all these things. And you walk through it, and it's overwhelming. Because you walk through that, and you realize what we have, and you realize what people are struggling with, and you're overwhelmed at the end. And the responses of people vary. In fact, one of the things that caught me off guard is that when Courtney went through it the first time, we got to the end, and there's this little room you sit in, you kind of debrief and process what you've just seen. And here, I'm the pastor leading our church through that at the time, and she looks at me, and she says, Dad, why aren't we doing anything about this? She was mad. And what's interesting is most of her anger was geared towards me. Like, Dad, why aren't you doing something about this? And it was a great question. Because her response was not this, the brokenness and the tears and the overwhelmingness of being, seeing the depression of the world, but was why in the world are we letting this happen? Why aren't we doing something because we can do something? And I know in my daughter that has changed her view of things. And I know even, again, my, I think the reason I have kids is the conviction of the Holy Spirit to move me forward many times. But you and I have to see things that maybe we don't see. We have to value people the way God values them. And understand this amazing opportunity that God has given to you and I. People who are in places of oppression, who deal with poverty, who deal with persecution, and all kinds of things that most of us in our lifetime won't ever appreciate, are the people who are more apt to find Jesus than people who have wealth. And all you have to do to verify that is look around the world. Look around the world and tell me where people are coming to Jesus. Sadly, it's not in our country. It's in places where there's poverty, there's persecution, there's pain, there's suffering. There's all the things that we run from are the very things that are a catalyst for people understanding the gospel. And that means when you and I have wealth like we do, simply helping somebody's physical need is the avenue that God uses to connect them with the truth of the gospel. It's not just a physical transaction. It's an eternal one. That if you care for someone's physical needs because of their own brokenness, they're so desperate for change, they're open to understand why they exist. They're open to understand who Jesus is. So us being willing to give up some of our wealth and maybe all of our wealth will translate in not only to caring for somebody who's thirsty or hungry and needs clothing, but somebody who has an eternal need that is masked in a physical need that we have to address. That's on us. God's given us wealth. That's our responsibility. That's the blessing and maybe even the curse of having wealth. I'm going to play as we conclude. I'm going to play a clip from the conclusion of Schindler's List. Most of you have probably seen the movie. If you don't, the story of Oscar Schindler is amazing. In World War II, he's a wealthy businessman who literally purchased Jews out of concentration camps to put them into work in his factories to save their lives. And when he finally comes to the end in this scene, he comes to grips with, even though he had given so much money, he realized how much more he had and how much more he could have done if he was willing to do it. Let's watch this together. Go ahead and close your eyes as we pray. Lord Jesus, it's overwhelming to, to come to grips with what it means to handle wealth and to deal with poverty. But Lord Jesus, we want to follow you. Even if it's difficult, we want to be obedient to you. We understand your great love for us and your grace and your forgiveness in our lives. But Lord, we know that you did not save us so that we could do nothing. You've saved us for your purpose in this world. 
And Lord, as we follow you, we are following your amazing example. That how you inspired Paul to write the words describing you and your journey from heaven to earth. That though you were rich, you became poor for us. So that somehow through your sacrifice, we might become rich. Not in material possessions, not in worldly wealth, but we might become rich in your grace and your mercy and rich in eternity. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be willing to follow you. We would be willing to sacrifice for you. We would be willing to live with some discomfort so that others might find comfort in the physical and ultimately might find that comfort comfort spiritually in eternity with you. So, Lord Jesus, we do come before you. Lord, we have nothing to offer on our own because we know the wealth that we have. It only comes from you, and we want to offer that to you as well. We want to give everything to you because you are worthy. We want to worship you, and we want to live for you, and we want to love people and value people the way that you do. So, Lord, work in our lives. Thank you, Jesus. In your name.